I'm Gugu Gule from the Pretoria East Group. What Monica forgot to tell you is that you are the coolest group in church. <laughs> Our reading comes from Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 to 35. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21 to 35. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and bleeded with him. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what, he had, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to you every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Moving on to Matthew 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of God. All right, thank you, Gugu, for that reading. And thank you, Monica, for the prayer. I'm not sure I can really add anything to, to Carol's testimony. How could you possibly? Um, other than to say we have so many Carols in our church, I think this is the fifth class we're graduating, if I'm not mistaken, and so many people have the same testimony. Um, some people were converted doing Explore. Uh, others have just had a profound depth added to their Christian walk, uh, not just the knowledge that puffs up, but their love for Jesus deeply enriched by doing Explore. So let me encourage you. Let me add my voice to Sean's and to Carol's and to these uh, uh, living embodiments of, of uh, an advert for Explore. Uh, do Explore. You won't regret it. And here's a bonus. The bonus is that uh, the class next year, the class that starts next year, Sean is going to be teaching. Uh, Sean is an enormously gifted teacher. We have three teachers who teach Explore. Sean is by far the best. The, the other one is Martin, and the third shall remain nameless. 
Uh, let, why don't you join me in a word of prayer just before we come to this blessing. Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune our hearts to sing thy grace. Streams of mercy, never ceasing. Calls for songs of loudest praise. Father, we long to leave here praising your name. We long to trace the streams of mercy that come to us daily back to their fount. We long to sing your grace and to live in your grace. And so we pray that you would help us to see you through the Lord Jesus and in the power of your spirit this morning. Amen. Hopefully we are beginning to get a sense of what the Beatitudes are and what they are not. So they are not, they are not a drawbridge into the kingdom that we have to walk across. They are more like a mirror inside the banquet hall. They are an exhibition titled Portraits of a Subject of the Kingdom of Heaven. Someone described them as birthmarks by which the true subjects of the kingdom may be identified. It's similar to Jesus saying, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. You acknowledge that you have nothing to give to God. You mourn over your poverty. You mourn over sin in the world and your part in it. And so you've lost interest in self-interest. You meekly accept your lowly position. And you long for better things. You long for the righteousness of God. This is the life of discipleship. This is life in the kingdom. And Jesus says it's a life of blessing. It comes with the promise of comfort, inheritance, satisfaction. It comes with the promise of total vindication and victory in the end. That certain blessing of future victory reaches back into the here and now with blessings for the here and now. Today we add another birthmark, we add another portrait, another blessing to poverty, mourning, meekness, hunger for righteousness, we add the merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Or in another helpful translation, how blessed are those who show mercy, mercy shall be shown to them. To understand what Jesus was teaching in this beatitude, we are going to approach it in three ways. We're going to look at three things. The meaning of mercy, the manner of mercy, and then the means of mercy. Meaning, manner, and means of mercy. The meaning of mercy. The best way to get at the meaning of mercy in this verse is once again, as we did last week, to go to the rest of Matthew's gospel and see how the term is used to describe Jesus and his ministry. And when we do that, of course, what we find is Jesus is the merciful one, and he extends mercy in at least three ways, or to at least three groups of people. He extends mercy to the needy, to the guilty, and to the lost. The needy, the guilty, and the lost. Matthew 9, verse 27, you don't have to go there, just listen. 9, verse 27, and as Jesus passed on from there, Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. 
When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, Yes, Lord. And he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. Later on, we read of a similar incident. This time it's with a Gentile, a traditional enemy of Israel. And this is what we read, Matthew 15, verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Ruff, can I ask you just to close that door, please? Thanks. Have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him, Lord, help me. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to a woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. The woman's daughter is suffering terribly. She comes to Jesus. She appeals. She cries out for mercy. He responds in a way that highlights the traditional religious, ethnic, cultural divisions between them in order to test her faith. She ignores those differences. She wholeheartedly puts her trust in him. And he ends the suffering. One more example from Matthew 17. Jesus and his disciples come down off the mountain of transfiguration and this is what they encounter. When they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him, Lord, have mercy on my son. He said, he has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples. They could not heal him. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of the boy and he was healed at that moment. Once again, a child is suffering greatly. Once again, his parent appeals to Jesus for mercy. Once again, Jesus responds by acting to put an end to the suffering. By acting to put an end to the suffering. These are not isolated incidents. They are the pattern of his whole ministry. You remember in our passage that we've read repeatedly through this series, the the run into the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 4, listen to the pattern. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, the paralyzed, and he healed them. As Jesus went around proclaiming the gospel, he acted in mercy to relieve the physical suffering of those he encountered. In other words... He showed mercy to the needy. He also showed mercy to the guilty. That is crystal clear from our passage that Magugu read for us this morning. Crystal clear. Peter asks, how many times should I forgive my brother? As many as seven times? The prevailing wisdom of the rabbis in that day was that you forgive someone three times. 
what does Peter do? He doubles the number and then adds one for good measure to give the Hebrew number seven, that, that number that carries so much freight in the Hebrew mind, the number of abundance. Seven, seven, as many as seven times. What does Jesus do with Peter's outrageous number? He increases it more than tenfold. Not seven, 77. He's playing with Genesis, the Genesis account. The idea of Lamech, who lusted after revenge, a 77-fold revenge. Jesus calls his disciples to forgiveness in at least that measure, to a forgiveness that exceeds that measure. In other words, our forgiveness should outrun and overflow our lust for revenge. He says there should be no limit to the mercy we show those who have sinned against us. None. He goes on to explain exactly what he means in the parable that we read. In the parable, it is the king's compassion that moves him to act and forgive such an enormous debt. Chapter 18, verse 27. The servant's master took pity on him, had compassion on him. He canceled the debt and let him go. Jesus didn't just preach this parable. He lived this parable. You remember his prayer when he's hanging naked on that cross, looking down at those who are gambling for his clothes as he hangs naked, humiliated, in anguish. You remember his prayer? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus showed mercy to the guilty. Finally, Jesus showed mercy to the lost. This is something that Matthew, the author of our gospel, would have taken very personally, would have understood at a very personal level. So from chapter 9 and verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus showed mercy to the lost. He showed mercy to the needy. He showed mercy to the guilty. He showed mercy to the lost. Looking at how he showed mercy helps us towards a working definition of mercy. As we saw in the parable, the heart of mercy is compassion. The king had compassion. But in every single case we've looked at, it was more than feeling sorry for people. In every case, Jesus acted to relieve suffering. If we define mercy by what it is in the ministry of Jesus Christ, we might call it something like this. Unmerited, compassionate action. Unmerited, compassionate action. 
The Greek word for mercy has those connotations. Connotations of both feeling, deep feeling. Feeling right from the pit of your stomach. From the pit of your soul. But also practical response. And so our definition seems to fit. The meaning of mercy is unmerited, compassionate action. Definitions are one thing. But what is the meaning of mercy for us in our lives? For the merciful ones. Because Matthew 5 verse 7 tells us that disciples of Jesus will be merciful. More than that, it labels disciples of Jesus the merciful. Friends, if you and I are disciples of Jesus here this morning, we are the merciful. You are the merciful whether you like it or not. It's who you are. What does that mean? It means we will show compassionate action to the needy, to the guilty, and to the lost. At the very least, that's what it means. So let's start with the needy. We said it last week, you can't read the Old Testament and miss God's heart for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the alien. When you get to the New Testament, that same instinct is there. It's it's overwhelmingly there. James is very plain. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? You can't claim to be a person of faith and just ignore people's physical needs. We don't want to be what Alec Mottier calls the armchair philanthropist. Those who talk a great deal about loving others and the importance of love and the Christian ethic of love, but never actually do anything. Sadly, I think perhaps too many of us fall into that category. Or maybe it's fairer to say that we fall into it too often. As one Scottish preacher said, it's only fair to quote quote a Scottish preacher today, After yesterday, this is what he said. The people who least live their creeds are often the people who shout the loudest about them. The paralysis which affects the arms does not, in these cases, seem to interfere with the tongue. Cheeky but true, right? We are called to compassionate action. The witness of the scripture is that when you give to the needy, in some sense you are giving to God. Proverbs 14, verse 31. Whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Thomas Watson said that a poor man's hand is like the treasury of Christ. You place something into the hand you are placing something into Christ's treasury. We honor God when we take compassionate action for the needy. And that, of course, is why the Love Trust exists. The Love Trust is our mercy ministry. It's our mercy ministry as a local church. And here's their purpose statement. The Love Trust is committed to delivering high-quality Christian education and social care to vulnerable children. It's our attempt 
as this local church to take compassionate action for the needy seriously. Now, if you want to get involved, if you haven't been involved, but you'd like to get involved, you need to speak to Kate. Kate is our liaison officer. It's a title we've just formally given her, uh, a plaque for her door to go under all the other plaques. Kate is our liaison officer. Just the title's meaningless. It just means we, we, we feel deeply and strongly that we need to constantly take ownership of our mercy ministry that is the Love Trust. And so if you want to get involved, please get in touch with Kate. Mercy is happening at that formal collective level, but it's also happening informally all over our church family. So I know of one family where all the local homeless people gather on a particular day of the week, every week, and they are given a food parcel. And word of this mercy ministry has gotten around to the people in the neighborhood so that other people, Christian or not, have started giving into this mercy ministry. And hopefully from there, conversations flow that connect this mercy ministry with the merciful one himself, our Lord Jesus. I'm sharing these examples excuse me, these examples, formal, informal, because, why? Because we want to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We call to spur one another on to love and good deeds. If others are doing it, we can do it. Where in your life can you show compassionate action to the needy? There's no end of opportunity, is there? Mercy means, also means, that we will take compassionate action For the guilty. If we can't neglect physical needs, and we can't, how much more do we need to attend to relational needs? It's no good campaigning for debt write-offs for poor households or poor countries when you are binding someone to their debt of guilt in your own private life. That's called hypocrisy. And we know what Jesus said. Woe to you, you hypocrites. We are called to show mercy to those who have wronged us. And you say to me, as you might have said last week, that's impossible. You have no idea what he did to me. Let me try and give two examples that will hopefully challenge and motivate all of us in this area. I don't know if you know this, but it is um, Remembrance Day in the UK today. That's a day when the nation pays its respects to those who gave their lives in World War I and II and other conflicts. On the 8th of November 1987, a bomb went off in the small town of Enniskillen, Northern Ireland. Eleven people were killed. More than 60 were injured. It was Remembrance Day. They were gathering to pay their respects to the dead. The IRA said that they had made a mistake. They were trying to kill British soldiers, and they ended up killing the townspeople. Gordon Wilson was injured in the blast, and his daughter Marie was killed. He said this in an interview afterwards, I bear no ill will. I bear no grudge. It is part of God's greater plan, and God is good. Just a few years ago, my Emily Rahube sat on the stage and she told us through tears how the South African police 
had given a hungry boy in the township a sandwich, but there was glue on the sandwich. The boy was poisoned, and he had to go to hospital and have his stomach pumped. That boy was her brother. She didn't just forgive. She actively loved people in this church, white people in this church, for more than 20 years. Every Sunday morning, you'd find her in the little kitchenette there off of the small hall. You'd find her making coffee. For who? For the 8 o'clock service. Who attends the 8 o'clock service? Predominantly older white people. White people who had lived through apartheid. White people of her generation. People who had lived through apartheid on the other side of the wall. Now, how could she possibly do that? How could she forgive? I have no idea. All I know is that she was a disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, we have to take compassionate action for the lost. We can't neglect people's physical needs. We can't neglect their relational needs. If that's true, we certainly cannot neglect their spiritual needs. As Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus cared more for people's physical and relational needs than anyone who has ever lived. And yet it's plain what his priority is. His priority was the soul. Because the soul endures into eternity. John Brown was an American abolitionist who spent his life fighting slavery. In fact, he died fighting slavery. He was... He was executed for incitement. So this is no stranger to taking compassionate action for the needy. And this is what he said. There is something monstrously absurd in men's being so exceedingly concerned about the removal of the suffering of a few years and altogether careless about the prevention of the intolerable miseries of eternity. You hear what he's saying? And he has a right to say it. Because he has given his very life to relieving the suffering of these few years. And yet, listen again. There is something monstrously absurd in men being so exceedingly concerned about the removal of the suffering of a few years. And yet altogether careless about the prevention of the intolerable miseries of eternity. Friends, we must have mercy on the lost. The afflictions, the sufferings, the deprivations, the pains of this world, and I'm not minimizing them, but they are nothing but the smallest taste of the torments of hell. We have escaped those torments. We have the power to help others escape. It's not our power. It's the power of the gospel. What are we doing about it? The merciful cannot do nothing about the lost. That's why the philosophy of education at this school 
and that the Love Trust has always been to prepare children for life and for death. We see compassionate action for the lost uh, in this church. You see it in new converts. There's nothing quite like the new convert. Because nothing gives you empathy for those trapped in the burning building like just having escaped the flames yourself. And you can still smell the smoke on your clothes. You've got to love the new convert. The new convert is just full of passion for Jesus. They don't care if there's an awkward silence at a dinner party. They don't care about breaking the rules of middle class etiquette. They will tell anything with a heartbeat about Jesus. There's one guy in our church... I don't think he's a new convert, but he he certainly runs off the same fuel. He finishes every week at work with this greeting. Now imagine you in your workplace. This is how he finishes the week. Have a fantastic weekend and remember, Jesus is coming back. Isn't that great? Remember, Jesus is coming back. That actually used to be the ringtone on my phone. A song sung. Those same words, Jesus is coming back, sung by my friend Christopher Magezi. Let me give it a try. Jesus is coming back, he's coming back, he's coming back, coming, coming, coming back. So that's my ringtone. And of course it goes off in the cinema. So we're sitting there and everyone's, you know, gripping their popcorn and uh, the... That, that opening scene, some sort of panorama of some American city, everyone's ready, and then, Jesus is coming back. <laughs> can imagine how popular I was. But the world would be a better place if that song was sung at the beginning of every movie, right? Mercy requires that we take compassionate action for the needy, for the guilty, and for the lost. And that, if you like, is the meaning of mercy. But Jesus gives us more than the meaning. He also gives us the manner. He gives us more than the what. He gives us the how. And so we'll think about the manner of mercy. The first thing that we've already noticed is that we have to have mercy for the whole human being. People are in souled bodies or embodied souls. They're not souls or bodies. We can't treat them as if they're just souls or just bodies. They are both. We are both. We have to act compassionately to meet people's physical needs and their relational needs and their spiritual needs. Because of what's at stake, there is a clear priority. Jesus preached the gospel to save souls from eternal torment. But as he went around preaching... He met people's physical and relational needs. Now there's a model for us. We should follow that same model. To preach the gospel of God's mercy without having mercy on people's physical or relational needs is just hypocrisy. To meet people's physical needs without caring for where they're going to spend eternity is, as John Brown put it, a monstrous absurdity. We have to have mercy on the whole human being. We also have to exercise mercy cheerfully. The the scriptures tell us that God loves the cheerful giver. And that it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
of course, having mercy will be difficult, will be painful, will require enormous wisdom. But there should always be an underlying joy. And I think if that underlying joy is gone, we've lost sight of the true nature of mercy. And we've also lost sight of the true motive for mercy. We'll say more about that in a moment. So mercy on the whole man, mercy cheerfully. We also need to exercise mercy with great humility. Now at this point, I'm going to be preaching last week's sermon again. And why would that be the case? Well, of course, because justice and mercy in God's economy hold together. Remember we said last week, His is a just mercy or a merciful justice. And so, as was the case last week, we need to exercise mercy with great humility. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Our mercy should be marked by humility. It should be between us and our Father. That's true of mercy to the needy, of course, all the more true of mercy to the guilty and mercy to the lost. We do not announce ourselves with trumpets. We need to exercise mercy generously. Jesus and his first disciples led a very simple and yet an extraordinarily generous lifestyle, materially. But again, this can't be limited and wasn't limited in their case to physical needs. We have to be generous in forgiveness. 77 times. We have to be generous towards the lost. Jesus gave himself nothing less. That leads us into the last thing we want to see about the manner of mercy. We must show mercy impartially. What does that mean? It means that mercy isn't reserved for our friends or family members. It isn't reserved for those who've shown that they're willing to change. For those who, if you help them this once, then they will start taking responsibility for their lives. For those who aren't to blame for their predicament. No, we must show mercy to those who don't deserve it. Why? Well, because that's the mercy we've been shown. Just a little later on in his sermon, Jesus will say, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people... What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? While we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. There we have it, the what and the how of mercy. We, the merciful, are to show mercy to the needy, 
to the guilty, and to the lost. We are to do it for the whole man. We are to do it cheerfully, humbly, generously, and impartially. I don't know whether to laugh or cry. How are we ever going to do that? The means of mercy. We've been thinking about other people's needs. But let me ask you this. What is your greatest need? Your greatest need is met in today's blessing. Your greatest need is that you receive mercy. On the last day when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, you will need mercy on that day. Your greatest need is mercy on that day. To give us all a sense of just how much we need mercy on that day, we go back to our parable. The servant in that story found a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii. You remember 100 denarii is about a day's wage. He couldn't pay, so he had him thrown in prison. A denarius, sorry, is a day's wage. 100 denarii. 100 days wages, something like four months wages. That's a significant debt. It's not a, it's not a trifle, that debt. It's a serious debt. That's the monetary equivalent of what we owe each other in serious wrongdoing. So this is not a snub or a mistake. This is serious wrongdoing, serious hurt or loss inflicted on another. It's not a nothing debt. And if we're honest, we are inclined to keep people in the prison of that sort of debt until they repay. Not so. It's a serious debt after all. They have done something deeply hurtful. And so we're inclined to keep them in the prison of that debt, often knowing they simply cannot repay. But we keep them in that debtor's prison, the debtor's prison of their guilt. Now let's look at what the servant owed his master. He owed him 10,000 talents. A single talent is 6,000 denarii. That means that 10,000 talents is worth 60 million days of labor. That's something like 2,000 lifetimes of debt. In other words, the servant owed his master his life, nothing less than his life. It was a debt he could never, ever hope to repay, ever. That's what we owe God. That is the cumulative debt of our hostility and our willful ignorance of him. That's why our greatest need is to find mercy on the day, that day, when all debts are settled. That enormous unpayable debt is what God has forgiven us. That debt is why Jesus had to come. He's the only one who could repay that kind of debt. He's the only one valuable enough. He's the only one with enough to offer to cancel that sort of debt. Your greatest need has been met and can only have been met 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. His compassion in action changes everything. It changes us from the inside out. If I've been shown that kind of mercy, 2,000 lifetimes of debt, if I've been shown that kind of mercy, I have no right to pursue justice in the trifling matters of this life. I've got no right to pursue justice with others. And I won't want to. I will want to give them what I have been given. If I don't, then I'm throwing my master's mercy back in his face. I'm making him out to be a fool for forgiving me that kind of debt. I've been misreading this parable for years. I always thought that the servant was choking his fellow servant in an attempt to extract the small change, the coppers, so that he could then pay that on towards his astronomical debt. It's not the case at all. His debt was forgiven. No strings attached. The debt hasn't been rolled over. It's not new terms. The debt is forgiven, cancelled. And so that means that the servant, in choking his fellow servant, must have been acting out of nothing but hard-hearted greed and anger. He's acting out of a lust for what was rightly his. He's acting out of that revenge impulse, the lummock that is in every single one of us. And that's us if we show no mercy to our fellow human beings. The thing that is going to make a difference, the only thing that is going to make a difference, is seeing how much we owe God and how much He has forgiven. How that debt was paid. The overwhelming abundance of His mercy is what transforms us from the inside out into the merciful. Do you see that we cannot pay our own way in this? It's only the overwhelming abundance of His mercy that transforms us into the merciful. We, don't, we do not act our way or behave our way into becoming the merciful. It's His mercy that transforms us from the inside out. Another way to say it, the means of mercy is the man of mercy. You are spared because of Jesus. He suffered every possible deprivation, deepest poverty, gross injustice to the point of being deprived access to his own father. And he did it for you. So that on that last day, you can have your greatest need met. You can receive mercy. And that great mercy reaches back into your life now and makes you into a person of mercy, a merciful one. If you have been shown mercy in the past and you will be shown mercy in the future, it will make you into a person of mercy now. You will live in mercy. And what a blessed life that is. Let's pray. Father, we, we plead with you once again for your mercy. 
And by your mercy, Lord, please make us what we already are in Christ Jesus. By your great mercy, make us into a people of mercy. Make us into the merciful. Draw us into the blessedness of your life as the merciful one. It's only in your name, Lord Jesus, that we can pray. Amen.